Hello, and welcome to Pragmatic Live, Pragmatic Marketing's webinar and podcast series where we tackle the biggest challenges facing today's product teams. My name is Rebecca Kelliger. I am the Vice President of Marketing at Pragmatic Marketing, and more importantly to you, host for today's event. Before we get started, just a couple of housekeeping items. First, a recording of this webinar and a copy of the presentation will be available after today's event. You'll be able to access them at pragmaticmarketing.com live, and you'll also receive an email with a link to the recording. Second, questions. We love questions. Please submit your questions, and we'll collect them to tackle either at the end of today's event or maybe in a future upcoming Twitter chat. Now, many of you are already aware and familiar of Pragmatic Marketing, but for those of you not aware of us until today, welcome to the family. Pragmatic Marketing specializes in training companies and product teams on how to be truly market-driven. We provide techniques for listening to the market and gathering market facts, and then using those facts to shape strategies and drive execution. And we've been doing this and doing it quite successfully for 25 years. Now, every month our webinar series digs into different box or activity of the framework. And this month is one near and dear to my heart, the product marketing plan. But this is the first webinar of 2019. And so we have decided to turn things completely on their head. Slides? Who needs slides? Not us. Thanks to Kelly from Kingman Inc. who is going to be illustrating our conversation live. Uh, what about one great guest? Absolutely not. Nope, we've got five great guests, and I'm thrilled to have with me Sadiq Cherian, Head of Product Marketing at LinkedIn, Jane Bailey, VP of Product Marketing at GE Digital, Mike Berger, VP Product Marketing at Gamesight, Jen Steele, CMO at Madison Logic, and Rowan Narana, Head of Product Marketing at Cognizant, founder of ProductMarketingCommunity.com, and a truly great friend and partner to Pragmatic Marketing. To say that we have a full session today is an understatement, so let's jump right in. Rowan, why don't you start by talking a little bit about the people behind the product marketing plan artifact, B2B product marketers. Thank you, Rebecca, and uh, Pragmatic Marketing for the opportunity to speak on such a foundational yet crucial topic, the B2B product marketing plan. So this topic is so important, as Rebecca said, we're going to record it. It's so important that we source the infamous Kelly Kingman from Kingman Inc. to capture the insights in real time versus just share some, you know, the typical webinar boring slides. And yes, you're going to get the masterpiece that Kelly is creating next week. And finally, this topic is so important that we couldn't deep dive into every element of the product marketing plan here. Email us chat at productmarketingcommunity.com or tweet us at PRDMKTGCOMM and ask us about which elements you want us to deep dive into. And not just that, you as our product marketing practitioners, perhaps you'd like to lend your voice to and pen to our community. We're always looking for contributors. So after all, you know, the product marketing community, it's, it's a grassroots, not-for-profit community built for you, B2B product marketers. And when I'm not heading up product marketing at Cognizant, uh, like Rebecca said, or attempting to be the best husband, father I can be, I spend my time running the product marketing community as a side passion project. And why is that? Because I firmly believe that product marketing is the most important and strategic of marketing roles at B2B companies. I believe this to be true because the role of product marketers, a.k.a. architects of growth, 
is to work with product managers upstream and field marketing and sales downstream to identify and achieve profitable growth. So we, we, us, B2B product marketers, we need to identify and achieve profitable growth. And we do this by doing three things. Number one, we understand the market. Number two, we build the message. And number three, we enable the messengers. If you want to be an architect of growth, we product marketers need to be accountable for the commercial outcomes of our products solutions. I firmly, I, re I really mean this, I firmly believe that product marketers need to conduct ourselves as financial asset managers, disciplined and focused on making investment and return decisions on our products and the activities surrounding our products and go to market. So today, alongside my friends from LinkedIn, GE Digital, Madison Logic, and Gainsight, we're going to provide some insights on the framework for a B2B product marketing plan and the elements that make up said product marketing plan. We're going to talk about business objectives, the market, the story, and finally, the strategy. We always start with business objectives because product marketers need to link our strategy and activities directly to our company's revenue and profit growth targets. That is our role, align to business objectives. We then understand the market, foundational to any of our product marketing plans. We need to understand where to play and more importantly, where not to play. All while doing this better than the competition. Once we understand where to play, we work on the story. Uh, you know, my infamous uh, MBA prof, Ken Wong, would say, let's keep away from margin-sucking maggots and identify the ideal customer and buyers that will reward us for solving their pain points. So now we understand our company's objectives. We know where we want to play and not to play, the story we want to tell and to whom. We then work on our strategy, our how to win, if you will. So let, let's get to it. First up on a product marketing plan, business objectives. What are they? Why are they important? And how to get them and implement them within the plan. I'm going to turn to Sadeep Cherian, Head of Product Marketing, LinkedIn Marketing Solutions, to give us his insights on this element. Sadeep? Thanks, Rowan. Excited to be here and really excited to see this start to come to life visually. Um, as well. So business objectives, I'm glad that we start here because these are, this is a foundation of any marketing plan because it describes what a company is ultimately trying to achieve and accomplish over a certain time horizon. And usually a business objective is defined as a year or a year plus and it's absolutely critical that the marketing organization be tied to not just inheriting what those business objectives are from uh, the leadership organization or the executive team, but you're a part of influencing what that is. So I, I firmly believe that the, the best product marketers out there um, bring the voice of the customer and the voice of the market uh, into the organization. And because you have that very strategic position of having that knowledge, you can ultimately influence what those business objectives are. And business objectives can range all the way from, are you trying to enter a new market? Are you trying to gain new customers in a new segment that hasn't yet been penetrated enough? Are you trying to improve operating margin, either by raising prices or doing some other change to your business? It can really 
spread the gamut in terms of what a business objective is. However, again, I would emphasize that the marketer, the marketing leaders be involved in influencing what those are. From there, you then want to have the marketing plan objectives be associated to the overarching business objectives. Without that, you'll find that you have a marketing plan that's really more catered to the marketers within the marketing organization, but you can't have a conversation with the rest of the business on how the activities happening within marketing are laddering up to ultimately what the business is hoping to achieve. And so developing these objectives, the business objectives are required in very close partnership with your cross-functional business leadership from the early days on, and then those should be refined and continually revisited as the business changes, as the market changes, and as you evaluate what the effectiveness of the marketing organization has been to ultimately achieve some of those business objectives. So with that, Rowan, maybe I'll hand it back to you unless you had other questions as it related to business objectives. No, thank you, Sadeep. That's much appreciated. So we kicked the plan off with business objectives for the sole purpose that every one of our activities and efforts as a product marketer needs to point to a corporate objective. Otherwise, what are we doing? We are not furthering the business. Once we understand business objectives, we have to understand the market, the market that we choose to play in. With that, I'm going to turn it over to Jane Bailey, VP Product Marketing, GE Digital. Jane, please share with us on why this second section, the market, is crucially important within a product marketing plan. Hey, Rowan, happy to do that. Um, but first, I want to thank you for uh, the, the biggest takeaway that I've gotten so far out of this, which is the term margin-sucking maggots. I, I, I can't wait to use that in my next meeting. So uh, I, I've, already, I've already got a, a, a one wonderful takeaway. But um, thanks, for, thanks for talking over to me for the market. I, you know, identifying the market is something that I, I think it's a challenge we've all struggled with at one point or another. And, and over 25 years of trying different methodologies and things, plus, you know, working with one of the market strategist greats on my team, like Shafali Patel, I, I do have a couple of thoughts. So obviously a key part of building one of those killer marketing plans is, is knowing the state of the market, you know, determining the size, how the market's growing, contracting, keeping a pulse on it, et cetera. Uh, and, and one of those key pieces is, is the size. So, you know, as most of us marketers know, uh, sizing the market is, is fuzzy science at best, uh, especially for a product like GE Digital's uh, asset performance management, for instance. Uh, it's an emerging space. Uh, and, and for this, we, we have to look at external projections from analysts like ARC or IDC or Gartner or Forrester. That's kind of the external validation when you can get it. Um, for, for us, for our internal calibration and, and things like resource projections, how we use our internal resources, we've really tried to make it super simple. We, we, we boil the exercise down to basic math. We use that external data uh, from places like analysts and uh, sources like Global Market Insights to help gauge the total number of companies in a target vertical, uh, along with, for us, the total number of plants per company, uh, and then we use an internal model that will help estimate our, our software's consumption within each one of those plants over five years. Uh, and then we'll aggregate those numbers and come up with a total, uh, hopefully very juicy, uh, revenue opportunity number 
which of course then in turn is used to determine how we allocate marketing and other resources. So that's, that's the sizing piece. And then another piece of the market puzzle that has to be in the plan is the state of the market uh, and whether that market is growing, contracting, you know, changing in any way. And again, at GE Digital, we, we keep a pulse on the market by both doing our own internal research on micro and, and macro trends and also uh, staying absolutely hip to hip with our, our customers to really deeply understand how the world is changing. And that helps us cultivate the sense of whether the market is growing or contracting. Um, in, in order to make the strategic bets on a market or which markets to go after, uh, we use a couple of different yardsticks. Uh, externally, we'll look at factors like CAGR, uh, influx of capital, uh, how much money is coming into a particular market, you know, the pace of innovation or how many new technologies are coming out of a market such as um, like self-driving cars and automotive. Uh, these things all translate into a customer's willingness to buy. Uh, other internal factors or yardsticks that we might use to measure ourselves and our own success within a market um, would be things like our, our current penetration of a particular vertical, our installed base, our existing relationships uh, with anyone having to, anything to do with that market, our, our product market fit, our brand presence there, our sales expertise and our footprint, uh, both you know, regionally and from a channel perspective. So analysis of, of all of these things and, and some very highly objective decision-making uh, you know, requiring us you absolutely reject any sort of qualitative or subjective guesswork. All of that drives the critical identification and, um, more importantly, prioritization of whether to grow and protect or incubate or, to your point earlier, even to walk away from a particular market. So back to you. Thank you, Jane. That's fantastic. And so you've laid out the state of the market the trends of the market, you've now bucketed out the size of the opportunity within the market that you want to play in. And invariably within every market, there are competitors. And as much as you need to understand the market forces and the market itself, uh, we have to have a very strong understanding of who our key competitors are and the segments we choose to play in, what makes them competitive. So can you add a little bit of color to uh, the competition within a product marketing plan, uh, why is it important within the plan, and, and how do you go about fulfilling competitive intel? Sure, sure. Happy to take this one, too. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. As we all know, competitive is critical. Um, you know, it, it provides that, that really important knowledge that not only helps shape our go-to-market, but also gives our seller, sellers that critical leverage in the field. Uh, it feeds invaluable information back into the product strategy, uh, to help fill market and solution gaps. I, I personally am, am extremely fortunate to work with one of the, the greats in competitive analysis uh, on our team, uh, Maureen Cronin. Uh, and, and she likes to say that competitive intelligence has multiple dimensions. Um, from a strategic perspective, um, at GE Digital, we frame up the industrial Internet of Things space by mapping our really wide range of industrial solutions uh, that cover a multitude of personas uh, across the industries that we play in, of course, you know, the markets that we were just talking about earlier. Um, with our CI efforts, we not only cover our own solutions like asset performance management, manufacturing execution and automation systems, but we also track the adjacent solutions like product lifecycle management, uh, enterprise asset management, 
because often what we think our competition is is not the perceived competition that our customers see. Uh, so we have to be really aware of that. Um, so, so how do we do all this? Um, you know, Maureen takes a, an extremely rigorous and consistent uh, consultation and tracking schedule of things like industry analyst guides, uh, news media, and she does this throughout the year. It's a full-time job for her to understand uh, the key themes and, and the shifts in this landscape. So uh, I mentioned things like news media, and, and this would include everything from scanning uh, key industry trade publications and the multiple industries that we serve uh, to the higher level business sites, to social media, to competitor sites, earnings calls, anything that we, we can think of or any place where we can glean information on the strategic direction of competitors and, and the big trends that they're tracking in the direction of. Uh, but, but another critical component, in addition to the strategic layer, is, is the seller and the, the field perspective, which kind of gets you down to uh, the, more, the more tactical level. Um, for instance, our field intelligence may, say, may see a completely uh, different dynamic regionally or within a particular industry or vertical. Uh, and then our win-loss data uh, could provide even more color on, on how and where we compete and, and what our customers are telling us and why. So, so this dimension is really critical for us to have a balanced view of, of our industrial Internet of Things landscape. It, and this layer in particular, I think, is, is a pot of gold for our friends in product management in terms of, you know, providing input to additional features and functionality that can be put on, on product roadmaps. So uh, one other thing I wanted to mention, I think one trap that I alluded to earlier, that it's easier for smaller companies or ones with a new product or a new product type, or you know what, even larger companies, I have to say, to fall into. Um, and I've been guilty of this one myself is, is one reason I'm raising it is saying that we don't really have any competition. And, and I don't know, I, I can't see hand raisers on the call, but uh, I think all of us maybe at one point have uh, had enough hubris to say, my product is unique enough, just like our child is beautiful enough, that uh, it doesn't really have any competition, no true competition. Um, so uh, until you really listen to your customers uh, and, and prospects, uh, and, and again, I was guilty of this, I said because I was working in uh, a, a company that had a new product that was uh, an emerging in an emerging space, I said we didn't really have any competition. But until I started listening to customers and prospects tell me that uh, my very robust and meaty enterprise software suite absolutely did compete with dinky little point solutions uh, that they were already using and evaluating, uh, which was a bit of a wake-up call for me. So I just want to caution others that you really have to listen to that voice of customer, voice of prospect, uh, to, to truly gauge who your competition or your perceived competition is. Um, and, of course, all of this is turned into uh, the stuff that we then use to enable and equip the, the rest of our organization on how to, how to go forth and conquer the competition. Um, it's, for us at GE Digital, it's less about the feature function type of bake-off uh, that you see at some more commodity type uh, organizations. Uh, for us, it's leveraged into, you know, how to win against X competitor at the executive enterprise buyer level uh, and making sure that our account executives are then enabled and have the right tools and language to, to compete in that strategic way. So back to you, Rowan. Any, any questions on competitive for me or that approach? 
Uh, no, that's fantastic, Jane. And you're right. There are always competitors. Uh, when an organization says we would rather do nothing, so a lack of, you know, because of fear of Absolutely. not knowing the solution, yep. that's your competitor. So there was always competitors. Absolutely. So thank you for that, Jane. And so now we have our business objectives. You know, we understand where we need to align our efforts and focus our efforts. We talked about the market, uh, and without an understanding of the market forces and the competition that you're going against, you cannot proceed to the next step, which is the story. And the story has a few elements within this plan. It's the ideal customer, personas, the buyer journey, value proposition, and messaging and positioning. And so we always start from a story perspective with who is our ideal customer? Who is uh, this organization that is going to take on our product solutions and adopt it? Not just buy it, but adopt it. And so with that, uh, before we, we go to personas within the organization, let's talk about the actual ideal customer and why this needs to be within a product marketing plan. Uh, Sadiq from LinkedIn, would you like to take this one? Sure, happy to do that. Yes, uh, any story, but also critical to any marketing plan, is the definition of your ideal customer. And the ideal customer is essentially what you've aligned on across the business as those target segments that you ultimately want to go after to achieve growth. Um, and just as important as defining what those target segments are is also defining what those, what those non-priority segments are as well. And so, for instance, last, uh, last November, we launched a, a pretty major product in the marketplace, and we said we wanted to go after the enterprise technology segment within a given geo. What was underlying that was the size of the opportunity associated with that um, segment, the, uh, the product market fit that we had as well, and then what led from there were a series of different activities that aligned to how do we then best win within that customer segment. So by defining your customer segment, you are going through a segmentation exercise in which you prioritize the segment, ultimately having the most critical one you want to go after bubbling up to the top. Now, segmentation and defining a segment and ideal customer can sometimes be conflated or confused with defining personas, so I'm glad we're going through that next because ultimately what defining the ideal customer as a segment means is measurable groups of customers that are bucketed based on firmographic variables versus personas, as you're well aware, are more of those descriptive representations of who those individuals may be. And so it's important that the reason why it's so important that you have the ideal customer defined is because it influences across a ton of functions in terms of where you spend resourcing. So on the product side, uh, if you're going against customer X, uh, segment X, you will start to focus in what are those product features or experiences you want to be building. As you're working with demand gen, what is, that, uh, what is the messaging and the associated targeting that you have uh, for your acquisition and win-back campaigns? Whether it's with sales and your field marketing team, if you're taking an account-based marketing approach, uh, what are those accounts that ultimately map back to your ideal customer segment to ensure that you're going after those that matter and where you think you have uh, the best opportunity to win? Now, the ideal customer segment 
can change over time. And so it's important that you continue to revisit what that looks like because that could change based on macroeconomic activities, based on the priorities of the business changing, based on the product or solution you're putting in market. Um, and so important that it's not a set it and forget it in terms of who that ideal customer is, but it's also important that the ideal customer isn't something that is known just within the marketing space, but is known throughout the entire company so that you can really align your focus and resources against that. I'll Thanks hand it back to you. Thank you so much. And so with a, a firm understanding of who our target customer is, the ideal customer, then we, we dig it a little bit deeper. And uh, as any marketer worth their salt would know that before you go and create a content asset, however snazzy it looks and digitally clickety-click it is, uh, you need a persona that, uh, so you understand the story that you need to tell. And we're, there's different types of personas. There's the user persona, in my humble opinion. That's the domain for product management uh, with some input from product marketing. But the buyer persona, which is the most crucial persona for product marketers, uh, is, is something that needs to be embedded within a product marketing plan. And so to, for that, we're going to turn it over to Mike, Vice President of Product Marketing from Gainsight. Mike, give us your take on personas uh, what they are, why they're important, and, and how you at Gainsight build out your buyer personas. Yeah, thanks, Rowan. Happy to do that. And um, thanks for having me. Great to join the rest of the speakers. And hopefully uh, everyone listening in across the country is nice and warm and toasty as uh, we all go through deep freeze. Uh, so, yeah, I'm glad you actually distinguished the difference between a buyer persona and a user persona because I think the word persona is thrown around quite a bit without distinguishing between one versus the other. So that said, like, how do I define a buyer persona? Well, I think of it as a fictional character that represents a specific stakeholder that's involved in the purchase of your product at your ideal customer, you know, which Sadiq talked about. And you know, I say stakeholder because unlike B2C purchases, there are usually a lot of different people involved in a B2B purchase. And these include you know, primary decision makers, influencers, you know, champions, gatekeepers, and I'm sure other people have different words to describe other stakeholders as well. And, you know, personas really help you deeply understand each of these stakeholders to shape your marketing strategy, to help you, you know, sort of determine your value prop and to create your messaging and positioning. And I think when they're done well, they really help to make your marketing efforts like super effective. And when they're done poorly, they're probably the reason that your marketing efforts are going to fail. So for me, the first and, and most important thing a persona needs to be, aside from being accurate, of course, is focused. Because I think if your personas aren't focused, your messaging won't be either. So as an example, when I started at Gainsight, I inherited a set of personas, and these were done by a third-party firm. As soon as I saw them, I thought, you know, there's no way these are going to be helpful. One uh, persona actually had 80 bulleted items across nine different categories, and all I did was picture a marketer sitting down and trying to use that persona to write copy. And I knew that, first of all, they wouldn't even know where to start. And second, they wouldn't have any way of really knowing which of those items were important and which weren't important at all. So what they really needed was focus. Uh, so our team basically conducted more research into the personas, and we ended up streamlining them pretty heavily. So that same persona with 80 bullets across nine categories became 22 bullets across four different categories, making it, I think, a whole lot more useful. So, you know, one of the elements I think that's often missing in a B2B persona um, that I've seen are the really personal emotional drivers 
that compel buyers to act. So just like B2C purchases, emotions actually play a big role in B2B purchases as well, and uncovering them can be hard for people. So I always say the key is to act like a five-year-old uh, when you interview these customers and just continue to ask, act or ask why. Um, I should preface, don't act like a five-year-old in your job in general. Just do this when you're interviewing customers. Um, and, you know, so you might be aware of Gainsight. We recently acquired a company um, called Aptrinsic in the product analytics and engagement space. So as a result, you know, we've been spending a lot of time building out some new personas. One of them in particular is the product manager. And, you know, as I interview these folks, it kind of goes like this. My first question is, you know, what are or, or why are product analytics important to you? And I get an answer that sounds like, well, because I want to understand how customers are using my product. But I keep asking why, and I continue to peel back the onion until finally I get to the point where I learn that, you know, this product manager is really stressed out because she has limited engineering resources, and she's not able to make data-driven decisions on where to focus them. And, you know, it leads to her coworkers feeling like she's making a lot of decisions that are uninformed. And, again, this is super stressful. So, you know, if you keep asking why, you get insights like these that are really valuable when it comes to crafting your messaging. Uh, and ensuring that uh, that messaging resonates with potential buyers. So that said, like, I'll give you a little bit of a, a template on how we format our personas at Gainsight, uh, and I'm, I'm happy to share um, some if, if people are interested. So, we, we, of course, we start with a name, and in this case, our product manager uh, persona is called Priya. And, you know, it's Priya because Priya starts with PR, and so does product, so we feel like that, that makes it easy for people to remember. And, and her name's Priya because we actually embrace diversity at Gainsight and all of our personas reflect this and we, we have literally just about every race and ethnicity represented. Uh, and of course we have a photo of Priya. And from there we include a three to paragraph story that paints a great kind of high level picture of this person and what makes them tick, which I think is really, really helpful. Uh, and then we have four main categories that I talked about earlier. One is um, what are these emotional drivers that I just discussed, two are what are the business goals of this individual? What are their business challenges? And then finally, what are um, their KPIs that they use to measure success? And, and that's it, right? So they're super streamlined. Like I, like I talked about before, I think focus is really important. Um, and I actually do have a few things that I'm, I'm thinking about adding, so I'll, I'll, I'll might as well throw it out there. And, and these things, by the way, I don't think it'll impact the focus that I, I think is so important. Um, one is where do they hang out? Right? So where do they find information? When it comes to driving marketing campaigns, that's obviously useful information to have. Um, the second one that I, I'm thinking about adding, which I really, really want to do, I'm, I'm excited about this, is to gather um, related quotes from customers that represent um, these personas, uh, because that adds a lot of color and makes them sort of real. And we've even thought about uh, creating life-size cutouts of all these personas and placing them across all our offices so that people always have them top of mind. Um, so that's kind of what's happening. That's how we think about it again. That's how we format our personas. And I'll just end it, you know, with a thought that I think when you do a really good job developing and promoting your personas throughout your whole company, it's absolutely amazing how quickly they'll be adopted. So, you know, we, we've, after this acquisition, um, we rolled out uh, the Priya persona and, and literally like across the entire company, I hear Priya come up in uh, just about every conversation. So, you know, if you do a good job promoting them and they're focused, then, you know, they'll be super effective. Thank you, Mike. That was fantastic. So what I took away from that is you have to have focus when you're building out these personas such as Priya. 
emotion, the emotional state of this individual needs to be taken into accord because we're selling to people, not just companies. Uh, understanding exactly. their business goals, their challenges, their KPIs. And, and the last part that you mentioned is, is, is crucially important. Where do they hang out? And, and this you know, segues nicely into our next section, their own buyer journey. Um, so these personas have their own means of uh, how they are influenced, how they are persuaded into buying things. And this needs to be very well documented. And so this brings us to the next element within our product marketing plan, which is the buyer journey. And Jen Steele, who is our CMO for Madison Logic. Uh, Jen, did you want to provide some color on the buyer journey? I'd love to. I'd love to. And thanks for having me. And thanks um, for all these amazing product marketers to let the, the rogue CMO crash the party here. Um, Full disclaimer, though, I did come out of product marketing. So buyer journeys are really fascinating because fundamentally, now that you know who you're talking to and who you want to talk to with your ideal customer, um, you need to know basically everything about how they find you um, and then how they interact with your marketing funnel, sales funnel, and post-close. And the reason you really want to do this is that if you have no idea how your customers and prospects get from point A, where they have never heard of your company, to point B, where they give you money and love, you're going to waste a ton of time on, and energy on things that don't matter. Um, every time I come across a marketing team that is basically running themselves by spaghetti test, as in they throw things at a wall and see what sticks, um, I, I'm pretty convinced that they have no idea what the buyer journey is. But it can be really hard to figure out what the buyer journey is because it's like, well, no two people have the same experience, right? And um, just like Mike, I've seen buyer journeys um, that are the analog of his 80-point personas insofar as they've got so many data points and so many um, different flows that it almost looks like a cloud of pigeons taking off kind of the chaos theory uh, graph of a buyer journey. And, of course, there, you can't do anything at all with that. Um, so – Constructing a good buyer journey has, you know, two or three basic phases. First, you have to get the knowledge out of the brains across your organization, right? Demand gen knows how, knows the piece of the journey where you're acquiring um, prospects. Sales has a really good idea of their funnel. Um, your customer success team likely understands post-close and some combination of success and sales probably also understands upsell and cross-sell. So talk to them. Um, also, talk to your customers, although I do find sometimes when you're interviewing customers about how they found you, uh, they don't remember, or um, sometimes they describe a process that is a bit idealized. But, you know, set all of that out. Look at the data. It's going to seem like a complete mess, and you're going to have to then structure it. So the first piece of the structure is, you know, the four pieces that I like to think of as you acquire um, you nurture, that's the marketing funnel, you accelerate them through the sales funnel, and then you grow for post-close. Um, set them all out, um, categorize all of the activities, and then, you know, start finding trends. And, you know, being able to write this on a whiteboard or something like that can really help you organize yourself. And you'll probably find a few different primary buyer journeys, and they likely map to your various segments or personas. Um, so with that, I'm going to turn that back over. 
Thank you, Jen. And so now within this section called the story, we talked about the ideal customer. Within the ideal customer, we talked about the personas in those ideal customers. And, and that's really the, the buyer, our hero. Uh, the hero has his or her own journey. Understand that journey. You know, look to your own organization, the demand gen team, the sales team, the customer success team, and your own customers who have taken this journey with you. Uh, to really get a sense as to how are you going to influence and persuade these people across multiple touch points because it's never just one. And once you get a sense of that, it's all for naught if you don't have the right value proposition, message, and position. And so to that, I'm going to go turn it back to Mike from Gainsight. Mike, can you walk us through, you know, we've come, come to this, this part of the, the product marketing plan and now here's really where we need to get it right and differentiate ourselves with the right value proposition for that persona and target customer, and also how we're going to craft that messaging and positioning to really resonate. Yeah, thanks, Rowan. Um, so, yeah, I always like to start by kind of defining these things um, in simple terms. So the, the, the way I think about a value proposition is really exactly what your product or service is and why potential customers should buy it, and it's really that simple. Um, but most importantly, it really needs to convey the value of what you're offering them. So it all sounds really simple, but, you know, consider this. Like HubSpot actually found that about two-thirds of businesses have established value props. But if you look at a study that was done, there was a research lab by the name of Marketing Experiments, and, and they basically ran a study where they created a framework to determine whether or not a value prop was useful. And in their research, only 2.2% 2 2 of companies have a value prop that's useful. So... A, uh, a CMO I used to work uh, for at Marketo, Sanjay Delakia, used to always ask us, what's the biggest room in the world? And we'd all answer at the same time, the room for improvement. So this certainly seems like the case here with value props. So where do you start? Well, I think, you know, you start by doing, it starts with your ideal customer. Um, and then all the persona work that you do, um, you know, it becomes extremely important. It's very foundational to this. Helps you develop that kind of deep understanding of the customers you're targeting and more importantly, the pains that they're experiencing. So your value prop essentially needs to explain how you're gonna take those pains away and make their life better or easier. Now, prospects know that what you're selling isn't free, right? So you should also think about your value prop formulaically because you know, without them even realizing they're doing it, your prospects are gonna be weighing the perceived benefits and the perceived costs in their heads. And you know, as they're thinking about it, if the benefits don't outweigh the costs, they're not gonna be compelled to do anything further. So that said, you know, what are some of the key ingredients that go into a good value prop? I think there are six that I want to cover. The first is, I talked about it earlier, it needs to convey value, right? That's kind of table stakes. But two, it needs to be concise. Otherwise, no one's going to remember it. Three, it needs to say how it provides the benefits. You provide better than your competitors can. Four, it needs to be written in the language of the customer. Otherwise, it's definitely not going to resonate. Someone said to me, or I read somewhere, you know, it needs to join the conversation already going on in the customer's head. Join the conversation already going on in the customer's head. I love that description. Five, it needs to be understood by a 15-year-old. So otherwise, you know, if not, it's probably too complex and people aren't going to digest it quickly and it won't be memorable. And six, it shouldn't, and this is a big one for me, this is like um, definitely my hot button, it's, it shouldn't contain any hype. Because, you know, when you think about today's buyers, they really want authenticity. And there's research to sort of back this up. So there was a recent survey, more than 1,000 B2B decision makers by a PR firm called Bar, 
And in this research, they determined that the vast majority of respondents said they were turned off by marketing buzzwords, and 88% of them basically said that they considered marketing cliches detrimental to a company's credibility. So I, I wrote down a, like kind of a, a good example and a bad example. So like something like the only fully integrated real-time sales and marketing effectiveness platform that optimizes the customer journey in order to maximize customer lifetime value, down as like probably you want to avoid that. Um, there's another one that I caught um, from Jeffrey Moore that I thought was really good, and his was, for freelance writers who have trouble getting their clients to pay on time, our software tracks past due payments and sends automated reminders so you can spend your time earning money, not tracking it down. So I, I thought that was a much better example. So that said, how should you think about crafting your value prop? And you know, we're actually doing this right now at Gainsight. We think it's kind of time for us to update our value prop, and we're working with an agency on this. Uh, the name of the agency is uh, Liquid, and I like their framework. And they call this "What Makes You the Only." And to figure that out, you need to get the right people in a room, and you need to answer six questions. So the six are: What is your category? How are you different? Who are your customers? Where are they located? Why is it important? And when do they need you? And I'm not watching the live illustration, but it must be a big challenge for the person to keep up with me because I'm from Boston and I, I tend to speak fast. So, you know, like I said, we're actually going through this process right now. And um, if you want to work on your value prop using this framework, um, I can provide you and I can talk to Rowan about how we make it available. But um, Liquid's happy to provide you um, with, with the tool. I think from there, you know, what we need to do is test it, which becomes really important. There's lots of ways to do that, um, you know, talking to customers, doing A-B testing online, um, to understand really what resonates the most with your prospects. Um, and then, uh, you know, in, in addition to the liquid template, there's actually a bunch of others um, on the web. One in particular that I thought is a good source is I'll call out Smartsheet.com. Uh, on Smartsheet, they've got uh, a bunch of free templates. So there's probably like eight or ten free templates um, including the one um, from Jeffrey Moore. So, um, you know, if you want to work on yours and use this framework, um, that's a good source. So I'll turn it back over to you, Rowan. Brilliant, Mike. And, uh, you know, I'm going to stay with you for a second uh, just to, to dive a little bit deeper. So we have our value proposition at this point, and lost in that is the messaging and positioning work that needs to get done. Can you touch on, and sometimes these are used interchangeably, what is, at, at a very foundational basic level, positioning and messaging, and uh, why is this imp so important to a product marketer, if not the most important thing a product marketer can do? Yeah, that's, that's true. I mean, I think that often um, you, you'll find product marketers perform mental gymnastics to try to figure out how all these things map together. Um, so, yeah, let me just start off with kind of how they do that. So I, I think that when you think about how they, they relate to one another – I like the way pragmatic marketing thinks about it, actually, which is, you know, the value prop starts with a customer while product positioning starts with a product. So it's kind of a nice framework to start with. And in, in terms of the hierarchy, you know, everything kind of starts with your value prop. That informs your positioning, which then informs your messaging. So that's kind of the, the flow. Uh, and when I talked about personas, I mentioned that, you know, there are lots of people involved in a B2B purchase. So the value prop really needs to kind of stretch in order to cover all of these stakeholders. You know, they're a group of people who ultimately will either purchase or influence the purchase of your product. So, you know, your value prop kind of has to appeal to them as a group. 
Uh, your positioning, on the other hand, is different. Your positioning really should specifically target one of those stakeholders or, or personas. And, and again, it points back to how, just how important both the ideal customer and the personas are. Um, they're completely foundational. Uh, there's a woman, Christine Crandall, if you're familiar with her, she's um, president of New Business Strategies. And what she said was the most effective messaging and positioning is at the intersection of customers' most valued and sought benefits, a brand's unique differentiators, and the market's direction. And I kind of I like that framework um, in order to start thinking about creating your messaging and positioning. In, in fact, if I apply it to our business at, at Gainside, I'd say, like, you know, we're kind of at the intersection of our customers' desire to reduce churn and grow net retention, our ability to help them do this by kind of rallying their teams around client outcomes, and we'd also tie into the market direction that we're all super familiar with, which is companies moving to subscription business models, you know, where, where it becomes really easy for clients to leave and find other solutions if they're not getting business value. Uh, so I like that framework. And then, you know, in terms of how to know whether or not your positioning is working, I like to ask three simple questions, and so I'll ask them in, in sort of the gain, through the Gainsight lens, but just, you know, think about replacing Gainsight with your company name. Uh, but I ask, you know, one is when you think about Gainsight, what words come to mind? The second thing I ask is what value does Gainsight deliver to you and your company? And the third thing I ask is, is Gainsight unique in its ability to provide this value? So I think these are really great questions to ask you know, in, in the customer research that you're doing. Um, we ask these questions as an example in our win-loss interviews, which is a great place to do it. Um, and then from a messaging perspective, you know, kind of how uh, the two relate, you know, again, messaging stems from your positioning. And more than anything else, I think your messaging should really motivate your buyers to act. So you know, whether it's filling out a form, uh, requesting a demo, or, or even making a purchase, right, if they can do that directly. Um, online, whatever it is, it should get them to act, right? And in fact, great messaging gets them to act now. And that leads me to sort of talk about um, an aspirin versus a vitamin. You need to decide whether you're going to market your product as one or the other. And sometimes your product will naturally fall into one category or the other, and sometimes you can decide where you want it to fall. But, you know, re regardless, when it comes to getting a prospect to take action, it's usually easier when your product's an aspirin. And you think about that in our own lives. If we had a headache, right, I, I'm running to grab a couple of aspirin that I'm going to take immediately. Uh, when you talk about vitamins, not so much, right? I mean, they're kind of nice to have. If I don't have any, I'm, I'm not going to run out to the store to buy them. So beyond just the urgency, uh, you know, lots of research out there, and it all points to the fact that selling vitamins is just a lot harder than selling aspirin. So something to keep in mind as you craft your messaging. And you know, speaking of, of messaging strategy, the other thing I would say, don't go it alone, right? Bring your customers into the fold. Have them play a significant role in kind of mess message creation. You know, I'm sure most of you already have one. If not, create a customer advisory board. Maybe create one specifically tied to giving you feedback on messaging and positioning. You know, and find customers that are thoughtful in their feedback. Don't, you know, you, you want critical feedback. Don't look for the customers that say, oh, we, we, we love this, this is great, right? Find the ones that are more critical. And I guess the last thing I'll, I'll end it on, since I know we're kind of a little bit behind, is when you meet with customers, really, really listen carefully to the, to the specific language they're using, right? The, I'm talking about the exact words that they're using to talk about the challenges that they're running into, and especially how they talk about how your product relates to those challenges, 
And then I think the, you know, the idea is you want to play that back in your messaging. And I think I mentioned before, like it, it, it's about joining the conversation that's already going on in your prospect's head. And the best way to do that is to use the language and the words that they're using to describe their problem. So hopefully that, those are some good takeaways in terms of thinking about messaging and positioning as well as how it relates to, to value prop. Brilliant, Mike. That was absolutely fantastic. And so before we turn into the final section of the product marketing plan, which is the strategy, let, let me do a quick recap. We started off with the business objective, so we know our guiding North Star. We then understood the market that we're going to play in and the competitors that we're going to battle. We then took it over to the story section. And in the story, we we understand that there's an ideal customer of which personas within that ideal customer set have a journey uh, that we need to uh, that we need to be cognizant of, and there's a very specific value proposition for that ideal customer, and thereafter positioning and messaging for the personas within that customer base uh, that are going to uh, either buy our product or not. So to that end, about how we actually make them buy. How are we going to win? And that brings us to our last section, the strategy. And that encompasses our marketing strategy, followed by the tactics that support that strategy, and finally, the measurement, the metrics that ensure we are headed in the right manner and headed in, uh, down the right path. So from a marketing strategy perspective, I'm gonna turn it over to Jen Steele again, CMO of Madison Logic. Jen, what goes into a marketing strategy for a B2B product marketing plan? So I love that um, you asked me to talk about this because it, it forced me to think about the difference between an overall marketing strategy and a product marketing strategy. My overall marketing strategy as CMO, I'm setting that based on um, what's the strategy that will allow us to achieve the high-level goals that basically are our growth and revenue goals, effectively, right? Whereas the product marketing strategy actually goes hand-in-hand hand with the product strategy itself. And for me, it allows me to bridge the gap between, okay, here's the revenue and sales goals I need. Here's what's pro product's doing over here. How, how do we what, – what are the high-level goals that align these two different pieces? And – in setting product marketing strategy, one thing I've found is that we've got to get out of the tech weeds, right? There's a vision behind things, and as you're talking to product about their strategy, sometimes it can be so technology forward that you lose sight of um, all of this, the story pieces that we just talked about. And so that's strategy. It has to be super high level. Um, moving into thinking about the tactics, and Rowan, I'm just going to roll these, roll these together here. Um, strategy is setting the what and the why, whereas tactics are the how, right? With strategy, you have a destination, but tactics become your map on how to get there. And I feel like very much we get the tactics, right? We've actually been talking about tactics up until now. But in setting down the tactics of your marketing plan, this is where you take kind of the jigsaw puzzle pieces of everything you need to do, of all of the tactics that are on the table, of everything you can think of, and kind of assemble those into the picture of your goal, which, of course, you said in the strategy. Um, I might have broken that metaphor, but I'm going to hand it back to you, Rowan. Thank you so much, Jen. And uh, now that we have the strategy and the tactics, 
uh, and the, t- the tactics really lay out uh, how we're going to execute uh, on, you know, on each of the objectives that we've set. There has to be a set of measurement that allows us to ensure we're headed down the right path. And don't get me wrong, this is not level of effort that we're measuring here. It's nice to know, and it makes us feel warm and fuzzy inside. But when the CEO is stopping you in your path down the hallway, and he's asking you what you're working on, A, that should be directly related to a corporate objective. And if your level of effort and the activity you're working on is not related to that corporate objective, we are not being architects of growth. What we're being is just yet another cost center within an organization. So let me hand it over to Sadiq for marketing measurement. We're going to talk about not level of effort, impact metrics, metrics that are ensuring that we are architects of growth aligned to business objectives. Sadeep? Great. Thanks, Roman. Uh, Yes, I love what you said there. Ultimately, the efforts that marketing is driving forth and product marketing need to map back to overall the business objectives that you're doing. However, measurement is absolutely critical because that's the common language Uh, that you're doing to set expectations across the organization on what success looks like. And for too many marketing businesses, uh, too many marketers and product marketers, they usually make excuses for why they may or may not have taken the time to define what a KPI might mean, to define what it is to have a successful tactic or an overall strategy come to life. And without that, you ultimately find down the line that it's less clear in terms of when you're evaluating the impact of a given marketing effort, how did that ultimately contribute to the overall success of the business? Additionally, if you haven't defined measures very clearly or KPIs, then you're going to not be able to constitute the amount of resources and associated um, credit that you ultimately probably should or shouldn't do. And it's difficult to evaluate over time how you can improve Um, as a marketing organization. Additionally, uh, marketers usually make excuses for why they might not set goals associated to those KPIs. We've never done it before. It's a totally new product. It's a new initiative. We have no benchmarks, not even in industry. And what I would implore all of you out there to go out and do is to still make an educated guess. Be very transparent about what those assumptions might be um, that are driving your, uh, your goals. And then over time, as you continue to revisit and monitor uh, how you're performing against that goal, you'll get smarter about setting, setting your goals. In the same way that we talked about defining the ideal customer or your personas or your messaging, all of this is set with a series of assumptions based on your engagement with customers and the uh, expectation of how things will be received in the market, but then will be refined over time. It's the same with the measures that you're putting in place um, that ultimately define the success of the, uh, it's the barometer of success for the strategy you're putting in place. So with that, I'll hand it back to you, Rowan. Thank you, Sadeep. So that brings us to the end of the plan. And, And the last section I'll throw in there is um, a bucket called risks, asks, and improvements. Um, and, and really what you want to highlight there, and I don't mean to say this to cover your ass down the road, but truly, if you are fully comprehensive of where you're going to play 
and how you're going to win. There are capabilities that are required to actually be within the organization uh, for you to execute on your plan. And so identify them. If they're not readily in place, identify them as risk. If there aren't uh, organize, uh, organizations or, or departments within your company that are ready to play ball with you, that you are dependent on and you go to market, identify that. And these are not, uh, not meant to just merely cover you, but also it, it's a good opportunity to really understand, are we set up for success? And so that last section, risk, ask, and improvements from, from year-over-year year, uh, activities is, is the final, uh, final element of your overall plan. So with that, we have our business objectives. We have our market section. We have the story section. And finally, the strategy. Throughout the course of the year with the product marketing community, we're going to tackle each of these and deep dive into them in future webinars as well as the six conferences that we hold. Uh, again, it's a side passion project from a product marketer to another product marketer. Uh, we do this uh, along with um, a, a team of three, Chris Schultz, Maura Whitman, and Alan True. We all have full-time jobs. This is something we do to help us become architects of growth. Go to productmarketingcommunity.com to learn more. And with that, I'd love to thank Pragmatic Marketing for hosting us today. And I'm going to turn it over to you, Rebecca, for the final say. All right. Well, thank you, Sadeep and Jane and Mike and Jen and Rowan. Uh, this was a great session. And thank you, Kelly, for the amazing job illustrating the conversation. Again, the recording of the event, the copy of Kelly's illustrations. We're going to make all those available. Um, as Rowan said, not only are we a proud partner and, and sponsor of the Pragmatic or the, haha, the product marketing community, but we also have a great deal of our own resources available, so I invite you to check those out. And don't forget to join us next month on February 27th when we explore how to win buyers with the brutal truth. All right? That does it for this edition of Pragmatic Live. Thank you for joining us, and have a great rest of the week. 